This episode of Policing Matters is brought to you by Lexapol, the experts in policy, training, wellness support, and grants assistance for first responders and government leaders. To learn more, visit Lexapol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. Welcome back to Policing Matters on PoliceOne.com. I'm your host, Jim Dudley. Hey, today's episode, we're talking about use of force issues, including the most recent history of the carotid restraint, the electrical conducted devices, what most of us generally refer to as tasers, and other force options that have been restrained or discontinued from use, such as tear gas in some areas of the country where they are deemed to be the last resort in only extreme violent situations. Well, we're going to talk about those things and possible innovations and options for the future. Our guest is John Becker, the founder and CEO of Aardvark Tactical, a leading provider of tactical equipment and custom solutions, along with training and integrating force systems at Aardvark. John became an attorney where his interest in civil rights and police litigation merged and developed into him writing for many of the top tactical publications on a variety of topics. He also hosts his own podcast called The Debrief. Welcome to Policing Matters, John Becker. Jim, thank you so much. It's great to be here. Hey, great to have you. You started at such an early age. You started Aardvark uh, at age 17, I read. How did that happen? So uh, I, I left high school early, went to college at 17, and uh, sat next to a girl that worked for a rock climbing company. And she, they were bringing in a camming device that was made in Korea and vacuum soldered and unique. And she said, hey, let's start a mail order business and sell this thing. And so I did. And, and right away, she flaked because she had a job and was going to school and had a husband and you know, all those things competing for her time. And I started dealing with uh, special ops units and law enforcement, you know, rope masters, rappel masters, uh, tactical teams. And um, I felt like I needed to know more about the gear than they did because I didn't want to be a sales guy. So I, I always studied deeply the stuff that I was selling. And that led to me having relationships with the teams where they would say, hey, you know, we love buying ropes from you. Can you get us Eagle Nylon gear? Say, well, I don't know anything about that. And they're like, oh, call this guy, get set up, and we'll buy gear from you. And pretty soon that turned into, can you get us chemical agents? So, well, I don't know anything about that. Oh, we're doing a class, dude. Come down. You can go through the class with us. And so by the time I'm 25, I've, you know, my rule was I would never turn down free training. So by the time I'm 25, I've got probably 3,000 hours of special tactics training. I have been through every, you know, handgun, subgun, shotgun, you know, pursuit driving schools, all kinds of stuff. And just by dumb luck, the guys that brought me up were the guys that had founded LAPD SWAT, that had founded, you know, LA Sheriff's SEB, and ended up being the national experts on all these topics. So it was Sid Hale and Mike Hillman and Ron McCarthy and John Coleman and, um, you know, R.K. Miller. And like, those were the guys that brought me up. Hmm. And the business just drifted into tactical stuff. I went to law school. I got out. I spent two years working LAPD police litigation while I was in law school and got out and had to choose between practicing law or continuing to do what I was doing. And, uh, and I love what I do. Uh, you know, I, I, my job is to keep tactical operators safe. And 
everybody I deal with is somebody who puts themselves in harm's way for other people. So you know, I, I maintain my license, but continue to do this. Yeah, well, I'm sure I'm sure you're, it's a it's a valuable uh, tool to have as a backup. Hey, your podcast is called The Debrief. And what's the origin of that story? You talked a little bit about your tactical associations and Sid Heal, one of my favorite guys, you know, God bless him and rest in peace. We'll talk about him in a minute. But how the debrief come about? So uh, it it when I started Aardvark, there was always um, a focus on retaining knowledge, on passing knowledge forward, and on making sure that the lessons learned were being passed through the generations. That's kind of changed over time because of early retirements and turnovers and all that. And I was at a funeral, actually. One of our friends, Tim Anderson, who was a Marine colonel and a sergeant at LAPD, um, Tim was Sid's business partner. The two of them talked together all the time, along with another guy named Dick Odenthal. Tim was one of the guys that fused this first doctrine of, of what Sid ended up writing field command about, of, of taking military doctrine and understanding how it, a tactical situation in law enforcement is driven by, you know, nine principles of war and the OODA loop and all these things. And they called it tactical science. Well, Tim got ALS. And when Tim died, um, we were standing at Tim's funeral and I was having a conversation oddly enough with Sid and said like, we're not retaining these, like we're not getting these things, these lessons learned, like think how much we lost today. When, when we lost Tim, we lost all this information and it's gone. It's not coming back. We're not gonna we're not gonna put somebody through another 40 year career to gain those lessons. And I said, we really need to figure out a way to document this stuff. And we need to document the history of special tactics because nobody's done it. And and those the guys that that originated this thing are, are gone and we're losing them. And I said, you know, somebody needs to put this together and we need to do some kind of video series or audio series where we're we're talking to these guys and we're capturing these lessons. And uh, Sid jokingly said, well, if anybody's going to do it, it's going to have to be you because we won't talk to anybody else. And ultimately, that was the genesis for the podcast was the realization that I had access to these guys. And the problem for all these guys is talking to the media is a trap for them because there is no upside to it for them. There's only downside. The media is not looking for, you know, amazing stories where cops do heroic stuff. They're looking for an opportunity to catch somebody saying something stupid and then run with the story. So law enforcement doesn't have a platform where they defend themselves and where they explain and you get to really see <clears throat> how smart and how dedicated these guys actually are. And so the, the podcast gave me a platform where we could have these discussions. It's, it's, it's our footage. We own it. We can delete whatever we want. We make sure that the stories are being portrayed in an accurate light. And all of our guests see their episode before it, co it comes to air. So it, it's, it's created a platform where we can tell these stories and share them with the general public. And, and the reaction has been unbelievable. Even people that I know that are mildly anti-cop uh, have, have come back and said, my God, I had no idea these guys were this smart or this dedicated or cared this much. Yeah. Well, like you, I'm sure, you know, I'll read or, or see something on TV and I think, gosh, you know, we could easily, you know, surround, you know, this protest or we can use some tactics here. And, 
you know, when you talk about the history, it's not like tactics change every day. We are still using things like choke points from Thermopylae in Greece, yeah. right? The Spartans. And, uh, and so the idea of modernizing it, putting it in terms that we can understand, taking away, um, you know, exits and, and escape points and things like that. Uh, that's good to have. And, and talking to, you know, tacticians like Sid Heal, I, I saw that you interviewed him on your podcast, the, the debrief. And uh, we've had Sid on a couple of times, talked about his book about non-lethal force. When I looked at it, I got a copy of it, read through it. And I thought, gosh, I wish I wish I had this when I was a lieutenant and then a captain and then commander of our special operations group. I just sort of learned as I went along. I went to tactical commander school, but every sergeant on up that has anything to do with tactical operations should see that book. Uh, what would you learn from Sid? So I was very lucky in that Sid was one of my first friends in the tactical community. Um, Sid and I were friends for 35 years. And, you know, if anybody was my direct mentor, especially early in my career, it was Sid. And uh, so it, it, you know, it was amazing because as, as knowledgeable as Sid was and as famous as Sid was, he never believed his own press. Uh, Sid, you know, was, was one of the most humble guys and he learned from everybody. And, and that was one, one of the things he taught me was to learn from everybody you have contact with. But, you know, when, when non-lethal started in, in law enforcement, you know, is, is less lethal and non-lethal started in the military, I just happened to be in the, in the place for both, right? We did all the original, we've done all the non-lethal capability sets for DOD. So the non-lethal military world we've been in and, you know, we go, my, my experience with law enforcement non-lethal goes back 30 some odd years to when flashbangs were first adopted and chemical agents, you know, were, were still relatively new in the way that they were being used uh you know the adoption of pepper spray the invention of the original taser and then the new taser like i went through all of that and was alongside sid for all of it so we wrote together we taught together um and yeah it's it is i was so grateful to capture him for the first two episodes of the debrief um you know we had no idea we were going to lose him you know, he had been fighting a, a cancer that wasn't going to kill him, but um, we had no idea that was going to happen. And and I would have that would have been probably my life's regret if I had not captured it, because the two episodes really, I feel like his kids. So, so Sid died. The podcast was launching the week he died. Mm -hmm. And I went to his kids and said, like, you know, I, they, they asked me to plan his funerals and I planned the memorial services and, and emceed it. And it was, it was a moment of like, Hey guys, what do we want to do here? And they said, no, 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 you it needs to go. Like he, my dad would want that out there. And the highest compliment I've received on the debrief was um, his son, Cassidy sent me an email after he, you know, finally had a chance to really sit down and watch it. It could make it through the episode. And he said, thank you so much for portraying my dad, how he really was. This is a, this is a treasure for our family. Yeah. Um, yeah so guy. yeah, it, it, Sid was just, he, he taught everybody. He taught everybody he met. Yep. Yeah, uh, his book is called The Concepts of Non-Lethal Force. I, again, I recommend everybody take a look at it, read it, learn it, live it. And I notice on your website, you talk about military applications. You use that word. And I'm wondering what kind of feedback 
um, up here in Northern California, um, oh my gosh, the anti-militarization of policing it, force is just huge. And, um, you know, we've had um, activists uh, stop uh, the Urban Shield uh, SWAT um, competition that was held annually here in, in Northern California. And it was just a great event. Uh, I think it was 36 hours of nonstop uh, participation by 36 or more SWAT groups went through this round robin of uh, different scenarios. And the top three winners uh, were the ones who did the best in, in swiftly and expeditiously coming to a successful conclusion on those scenarios. What's your, what's your feedback? What kind of kickback are you getting from the anti-militarization of policing uh, people? So it's it's one of the biggest frustrations I currently have is this 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 doctrine of militarization of law enforcement. Um, I deal with military units. I deal with federal units. I deal with state and local units. Over the course of my career, if if the technology has transferred in any way, it's actually been the other direction. The, the funny thing about it is, you know, it's people think that law enforcement is becoming militarized, and in fact, military is becoming law enforcemented. Uh, if anything, you know, when, when you look at, you know, the last two wars, um, the military is designed for attrition warfare. It's designed to break things and, and fight force on force. It's not designed for the kind of missions that we found in Afghanistan and Iraq. And so what actually happened was the exact opposite, right? Law enforcement was training the military. You had, you had military units coming to LA Sheriff's, LAPD, saying, how do you deal with house searches? How do you deal with these kinds of things? The, the problem is what's what's happened is it's got it's gotten a, you know, a brand that they can run with, which is militarization of law enforcement. Really, in most cases, the complaint is not the technology. The complaint is the tactics. And it's it is the use of tactics, uh, you know, dynamic entry being one that is kind of currently all the rage to attack. Um, it is it is the use and overuse of, of tactics that has driven this narrative that law enforcement is acting like the military. And, and it's just, it's not true. And, and when you look at the technologies that they attacked, you know, in California, you have AB 481, where they're, you know, naming militarized, you know, militarized equipment. And almost everything on that list was created and developed in law enforcement for law enforcement. And it's not, you know, whether it's a kinetic breaching tool, or it's, you know, you know, they, they, they're attacking bears and bear cats, you know, all the Linco armor. Um, those were all created for law enforcement. Those are not military vehicles that, that came into law enforcement. And what's funny is they're saying, you know, well, we need to get rid of armor. And most of the time, the people that are talking about it don't understand the consequences of what will happen if you actually do those things. Right? Oh, we got to get rid of SWAT teams. Okay, well, the, the absence of SWAT teams is, is the inability to rescue hostages. It is the inability to deal with barricaded subjects. Um, you know, the, the removal of armor means that people are placed in greater peril. And a SWAT team that is negotiating from behind armor with a suspect has the opportunity to de-escalate the situation. Whereas if they didn't have the armor, they're going to kill the guy because the second he shoots at him, they have no choice. Um, it's kind of like, you know, the attack on non-lethals. People are like, oh, we have to get rid of tear gas. What people don't understand is if you get rid of tear gas, it means that every time somebody barricades, you're going to have to send a SWAT team in to face-to-face -face encounter the guy. You can't force him out of the structure. You have to go get him. 
So the number of shootings is going to go up. The number of officer shootings is going to go up. Um, you know, it's, it's, they're kind of conflating a number of concepts and pushing them together to drive a narrative of let's get rid of all of these different technologies and tactics because they don't understand how they're used. And part of the problem is that law enforcement is not actively defending itself. You know, if you look at what happened with AB 481 in California, you had Radley Balco's book led to an ACLU report, which ultimately ended up making up most of the doctrine of AB 481. And a lot of that is because there is nobody out there explaining this is how this technology is used. And a single misapplication of technology doesn't mean you get rid of the technology. We're so inclined in our society to say, well, oh, somebody shot somebody with a gun. We should get rid of all guns, right? People are driving drunk. Let's get rid of cars. No, let's just stop people from committing crimes. If, if law enforcement is misusing technology, let's stop the misuse, not eliminate the ability for all these teams to protect themselves and to safely intervene. Yeah, 100% agree with you, especially about you know, the opportunity for law enforcement leaders to step up and explain, I don't know what their forum would be, you know, they could invite a press conference and say, you know, these are not tanks, these are armored vehicles to get people in and out of hot zones or to rescue people. Uh, but we never take that opportunity. And, and so, so that narrative, that false narrative hangs in the air for as long as it does. And, and people are indoctrinated or they're, they're, they're trained to say, okay, every armored vehicle is a tank and we need to do better there. I wanna ask you some more about the moral panic that you just described, that every time there's that one incident, there's that knee jerk um, reaction that says, okay, let's get rid of everything. Let's get rid of um, you know things without evidence-based research uh, because of that one or a couple of uh, negative outcomes. But first I'd like to take a moment and thank our sponsor. Lexapol empowers first responders and public servants to best meet the needs of their residents safely and responsibly, serving more than 2 million public safety and government professionals in over 8,000 agencies and municipalities. Lexapol offers a range of solutions that includes policies, training, behavioral health resources, news and analysis, and grant assistance services for law enforcement, fire and rescue, EMS, local government, and other agencies dedicated to public safety. To learn more, visit lexipol.com. That's L-E-X-I-P-O-L.com. And we're back, and I'm speaking with John Becker, the founder and CEO of Aardvark Tactical and the host of the Debrief podcast. We talked a little bit about the moral panic, John, um, about... Uh, somebody's hurt with uh, a taser or a chokehold or a carotid restraint, and let's just get rid of them all. I mean, some some agencies, some uh, cities, uh, their their government uh, body has restricted, if not got rid of the use of these kinds of things. What do you see in the future? Are we going to regain some of these tools that we lost over the last uh, George Floyd and COVID years, like the carotid can we go to congress and say hey look this is the reality of it will is there ever going any back is there ever going back to these things you know i think i think to some degree we're going to have to return to some of these technologies and continue to develop other technologies to de-escalate it's it's 
you know, one of the one of the social changes that has taken place over my career is the individual value of human life has changed and the view of law enforcement using force has changed dramatically. And, and I, and I would argue, you know, in, in many ways for good, um, you know, it's, 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 it's very easy to forget that the, you know, the constitution was written to protect us from our government, um, not from each other, from our government. And, you know, as somebody who loves con law and has written on con law and, and researched a lot on con law, um, you know, the, the, the doctrine that the founders created was to prevent the government from becoming oppressive. And, and that government that is oppressive is frequently the state and local. It's not the, it's not the federal government, although the Fed was what they were really concerned about. So we, we have to keep that in mind that, you know, there is kind of a, a, a libertarian spine to the United States that we need to remember. That said, We've been running this grand experiment for the last 20 years where we have let crooks out of jail, we've reduced bail, we've punished our police, we've persecuted our police, we've taken away tactics, we've taken away tools. And, you know, from where I sit in California, it's not going real well. Uh, you know, you're in Northern California, you can go to any of the Bay Area cities and look around and know that this, is, this experiment has not necessarily worked. Uh, you know, crime is a problem. And so, yes, we need to deescalate situations. But if we take away all the tools that allow law enforcement to slow situations down, that allow them to gain distance, that allow them to intervene without having to use lethal force, we increase the likelihood that they will use lethal force. We increase the likelihood of officer injuries. And so I think what we will see, you know, the pendulum swings back and forth. You, you've done this long enough as, as have I that, you know, I've, I've seen this pendulum swing to very aggressive law enforcement tactics, think war on drugs, to post Rodney King, you know, we don't want the police to touch anybody. And I, we're just in one of those cycles right now where we've swung too far to the other side and we need to pull it back to the middle. The challenge is, that the opposition to law enforcement is organized and centralized, right? The people that are pushing this militarization agenda, the people that are pushing anti-law enforcement agendas, it's a very limited number of people who are coordinating their efforts and are waiting for the case, right? They're waiting for George Floyd to take ground and to exploit, you know, that narrative and, and, twist statistics to get what they want from their agenda. There is no organized law enforcement defense, right? There are 18,000 police departments in the country. Each of them is kind of, you know, fighting their own PR battle. And there aren't organized bodies that are responding to these attacks. And I really feel like there needs to be a more clear narrative on the part of law enforcement that says, now, wait a minute, here's the statistics. And when you dig in the statistics of police shootings, especially police shootings based on race, um, the data doesn't support the narrative. And, and that's true with non-lethals. The data doesn't support the narrative. There are so many people that have been saved by tasers. Like the number of suspects who would have been killed but for a taser or the number of suspects that would have been killed but for the ability to use tear gas to drive them from a house is staggering. But nobody, nobody talks about that. There is no defense to that. And that absence of defense allows the opposition unbridled things to basically make up their own story.
Right. So what do you see? Let's let's okay, that we spiraled down. Let's swing up on this one. What do you see as force innovations that will fill the gap if if some agencies are left between open hand, close hand tactics and the firearm? We have the baton in there somewhere. What what's going to come forward? What do you see as innovative that's going to come forward help fill that gap? I think one of the things that is really going to drive um, you know, safety is actually robotics and drones. Um, you know, it is, if you think about it in a tactical situation, the goal in slowing down an event is to delay or prevent an officer coming face to face with a suspect who has a gun. Because if that happens, you have a lethal force situation and there is no way to avoid it once the two of them are face to face. Right. What robotics give us the ability to do is deal with a suspect from a distance, from cover, from safety, and help the suspect understand that he's not going to win. Right. I, I remember, you know, one of my favorite Sid sayings is that the goal of tactical operations is to make the suspect understand that resistance is futile, which means surrender becomes more likely. And as we start to develop, you know, further robotics platforms and drones, what's happening is we are seeing police departments engage suspects at distance, negotiate at distance, um, gain greater strategic insight and greater tactical insight into where he is, what's he doing, you know, where is he positioned. And at the same time, the suspect is understanding they now know where I am. I can't see them. They can see me. If they want to kill me, they can do it which increases the likelihood of him saying, okay, fine, I give up. Hmm. And I think that that's really what we're going to see both in non, you know, you look at like the evolution of the wrap device, uh, you know, taser, taser being the, the most transformative technology. But when you look at the wrap, really what you're doing is you are intervening sooner with a lower level of force to prevent the situation from escalating. And so the sooner we can place the suspect in a position that he realizes I'm not going to win before he gets emotionally spun up before he has an opportunity to engage in physical violence against law enforcement. Um, we are going to decrease the amount of force that is being used. And, and also at the same time, dramatically improve operator safety. Like you look at the stuff that we're doing with drones now and robots, like nobody's ever going to stick their head in an attic again because you don't have to. Right. And you, you look at the way SWAT teams, especially the bigger, you know, more the full-time teams now, the way they're dealing with barricades has changed completely. You know, it used to be you would go charging in there and engage the guy and hopefully win the gunfight. Now, if you barricade it, I mean, if you're with LA sheriffs or LAPD and you're barricaded in a house, um, you're going to be negotiating right away. You're going to be gassed. They're going to strip the house away from you, like literally dismantle the house around you and just make you so uncomfortable that you have to give up rather than them having to go in and engage you. And, you know, another great Sid saying, as he said, the problem with dynamic entry in a barricade is you're dealing with a suspect who has made so many bad life decisions that the sheriff is knocking down his door with a SWAT team. And now you're giving him 10 seconds to make a life altering decision. He's not going to make the right choice. So give him an hour. <laughs> increase the odds that he makes a good choice. Yeah. And I think that's where you're seeing technology develop now is to slow down events and provide distance. Right, right. Yeah, good points. Uh, I guess we're not giving pizzas and Cokes away anymore. 
Um, <laughs> so you mentioned the bola wrap. I talked a little bit about the glove on another show. Uh, Brazilian jiu-jitsu. What do you think? It's a perishable skill. You got to have, you got to commit to the training. No. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the things that has changed over the course of my career is hand to hand skill has declined dramatically in law enforcement. Um, you know, it used to be everybody fought in the Academy. It used to be, you did a lot of arrest and control. Um, and I, I think a combination of use of force lawsuits and injuries and training have driven a lot of academies away from, from hands-on physical tactics. And the, the unfortunate thing about that is it, it, you know, like I said, I always use the analogy of dropping a match on a carpet. If you step on the match quickly, the fire's out. If you wait three minutes, the house is on fire. And as you know, so many force situations, if the officers intervene quickly and decisively, which can be jujitsu, it can be, you know, hand-to-hand tactics, uh, you know, it's, it's good arrest and control. Um, that puts the suspect in a situation where he's like, oh man, I'm not going to win the fight. And so he's a lot less likely to start swinging, right? You look back at the Rodney King incident. If, if Rodney had been effectively handled, they don't end up hitting him as many times as they do. Mm-hmm. But at that point, the baton was the way everybody was dealing with the problem. And I think, I think the growth of Brazilian jiu-jitsu and other hand-to-hand techniques um, is actually a fantastic thing for law enforcement. I think it'll dramatically increase officer safety. The longer a fight goes on, the more likely it is to end in lethal force. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I don't know if you've ever rolled with somebody who's, you know, a black belt in Brazilian jiu-jitsu, but um, the fight doesn't last very long if you don't know what you're doing. Uh, so I think it's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, you, you, you make a good point about the Rodney King incident. And a lot of our viewers or listeners are probably too young to realize that. But if you read a, a great book, um, Lou Cannon writes a book called uh, Official Negligence of all the things that led up to uh, the Rodney King fiasco. And that was the, in fact, it was the inadequate uh, training and use of the baton and the taser that was employed, yeah. uh, both contributed to this long drawn out, awful looking event, bad, uh, you know, head and shoulder blows by the baton and uh, just looked awful. And of course, it's on video. So uh, that was a lesson learned. And um you know, I talk about it in classes about, uh, I guess it was the night of the incident that uh, training sergeant pulled two officers uh, from lineup and had them demonstrate some baton uh, tactics, and they were awful at it. And instead of taking their batons away from them, told them, okay, get out on the street, and we'll send you to training next week. Well, next week never came, right? Too too bad about that. Well, at that at that point, everybody was using the PR-24, right? Which, right, right. which is a Tomfa, right? It's, it's a, that's a karate weapon, uh, which has, is fantastic if you know how to use it. If you don't, it's a very poor club. And I think that, you know, we, we are making a series of choices as a society that we don't understand we're making. Mm. And as we are saying, oh, we want law enforcement to spend more time training all of these, you know, anti-bias and, and, you know, uh, sexual harassment and like this, we're, we're adding this training burden, but we're not expanding the amal- amount of time available for them to train and we're not expanding budgets. Mm. So what we're ending up with is essential skills are beginning to get eliminated. And we are, we are down selecting a population 
through litigation, through you know, public vilification of officers that is less aggressive, that is less decisive, that is you know, not necessarily equipped for the force situations that they end up with. And, and what you end up with is Uvalde, mm-hmm. right? Like you, you, I always say, you, if you want a lap dog, get a golden retriever. If you want a canine, get a Belgian Malinois. But don't, don't select golden retrievers and then wonder why there are such bad canine officers. Like you, you've down-selected to a population that doesn't do that. And as we're training less and the academies are becoming less stressful and less physical, we are inadvertently selecting out the people that we want. You know, I've heard administrators say, well, we don't hire, we don't like to hire veterans because a lot of them have PTSD issues or, you know, a lot of them have been in, in violent situations. So, you know, we, we try to avoid that. And it's like, that is absolutely who you should be hiring, right? These are people who have been down selected for this skill set. Um, but as, as we're making those choices, we're, we're starting to bear the consequences of them. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the Uvalde issue is, I mean, that's another show. That's a two hour show. And at least, and I think, you know, from all the stories I've heard about people who were there that, that you did have some trained uh, specialists who are really uh, chomping at the bit to go in. I think leadership um, was, a big, was a big issue there. Um, I want to wrap up. I want to talk about um, where can we learn more about debrief and the work that you're doing? Uh, what are you talking about on the debrief these days? So uh, we just finished season one. Uh, we had a total of 12 guests in season one. We're getting ready to start season two. Um, this season is going to start with an interview with a Congressional Medal of Honor recipient, with uh, an interview of one of the guys who was the team leader at the Bataclan raid uh, from, from BRI. Uh, and then the team leader of uh, one of the Canadian RCMP teams. Um, the season two will start mid-January. Um, people can find it anywhere you go for podcasts. It's on all the major podcast platforms and YouTube. Um, there's also a website, which is thedebrief.live. Um, and that'll have all previous episodes and, and all the forthcoming episodes uh, for them to watch. Great. Yeah, I love the title, The Debrief, because, you know, we talk about it, how important it is to learn from our mistakes or our successes and uh, and to pass them down. And, and, you know, you started out the show by talking about creating the debrief because of this institutional knowledge that we often uh, let go when people retire, right? We have to keep rethinking the wheel and reinventing the wheel. And, um, I love it when a show like yours comes around. We try to do it here on Policing Matters by bringing in you know, knowledge of experts, experienced people to pass on to maybe some of the newer people in the profession. So, hey, thanks for what you're doing, uh, John Becker. Uh, hope to listen to the debrief and, and talk to you again real soon. Thank you so much, Jim. I appreciate you having me on. All right. Take good care. Hey, to our listeners, hope you enjoyed today's guest and let me know what you think. Drop me a line at policing matters at police1.com. Let me know what you think. Let me know who you want to hear from, what you want to hear about. And uh, yeah, check us out. Hope to talk to you again real soon. Stay safe. Watch your six and uh, talk to you again later.